This is the daily podcast from St. Paul's Knightsbridge, an invitation to pause for not more than 10 minutes each day to think, to reflect, and to pray. As the church marks the end of the week of prayer for Christian unity, this week Phil Davis explores notions of Christian unity, beginning in his hometown in North Wales. A kangaroo, how odd I thought. I was in the Roman Catholic Church in my hometown of Cricketh in North Wales, a charming seaside town known for its medieval castle and the best ice cream in Wales. I was about ten years old and it was Christian Unity Week, hence me, a good Calvinistic Methodist boy, being in the Roman Catholic Church for the first time. An unremarkable 60s brick building with a prefabricated roof located on the outskirts of the town next to the police station and a car dealership. I can't imagine the unprepossessing location of the church was completely accidental in this Welsh town dominated by nonconformists. As good Calvinistic Methodists, we were slightly suspicious of the other Protestant denominations, very doubtful about the Anglicans, and as for the Roman Catholics, well, they were highly suspicious with their popish ways, their extravagant rituals, and their highly decorated church, with, which rather peculiarly included a painted kangaroo on the wall next to the tabernacle, gazing upon the crucified Christ. We Methodists knew our Bible, and there certainly wasn't the mention of a kangaroo at Golgotha. Christian Unity Week was a challenge in Cricketh because, well, there wasn't much unity amongst the Christians. Six nonconformist chapels, two Anglican churches and a Roman Catholic church served a population of barely 1,500 people. Why so many options? Well, groups of people kept on falling out with each other. During the second half of the 19th century, Cricketh was connected to the railway network and with the trains came people from the cities of northwest England and the Midlands for holidays and those people wanted to go to church. But attempts to share church buildings with the indigenous Welsh-speaking community resulted in disagreements about service times, and so the English built their own Anglican church and Methodist chapel, both of which remained active until the mid-80s. And division happened over doctrinal and theological issues too, such as the split between the Scottish Baptists and particular Baptists in the 1840s, and the splits between the Welsh-speaking Calvinistic Methodists in the 1890s. Remember, the English-speaking Methodists had already built their own chapel, and so this small seaside town now had three Calvinistic chapels until the end of the 20th century. Today is the last day of the week of prayer for Christian unity, and as I cast my mind back to the experience of Christian Unity Week in my hometown, I recall a largely sociable and fun week. We listened to lectures about buildings and the history of the congregations. There was much tea and cake. I don't recall much worship, but there was certainly some hymn singing, and I do remember the Anglicans putting on a Christingle service, resulting in a number of children maiming themselves trying to dig out a hole in the orange for the candle. Health and safety hadn't quite made it up there. And at the end of the week, we all went home and didn't darken the door of another place of worship for the rest of the year. Ecumenical duty done. Now back to our chapel and our way of doing things. My experience of ecumenism in London hasn't been much different. About ten years ago, I joined in a few visits arranged by churches together in Westminster, and indeed we welcomed a group of people to St Paul's Knightsbridge as part of that scheme. 
The formula was pretty much the same for each visit. A welcome by the minister, a short act of worship, although this was optional, and a history of the building and a tour, and perhaps an organ recital if there was a decent instrument. It was perfectly interesting and enjoyable, but felt more like Christian tourism than it did ecumenism. Everyone felt a little bit better that they'd been to see what other Christians get up to in their church, but one always had the feeling that everyone was relieved to return to the safety and familiarity of their church. It strikes me that there might be a little more to striving for Christian unity than this. Sure, it's good to spend time with Christians of other denominations, getting to understand their traditions and to share hospitality. But if we stop there, we are probably not quite striving for that unity which is God's gift and will. And so this week, as we end another week of prayer for Christian unity, I want to dig beneath the surface a little. To what kind of unity are we called in Jesus Christ? And how might we strive for that in what seems to be an increasingly divided landscape? Over the past century, there have been numerous movements for advancing unity in the Church, most notably the efforts for reconciliation between the Roman Catholic and Anglican churches following the Second Vatican Council. But many of these movements seem to be flagging apparently immovable positions on matters such as the ordination of women, social issues and issues of sexuality dominate the conversation, and it all seems hopelessly irreconcilable. And indeed, within our own Anglican communion, there is increased tension between the constituent churches as disagreement on similar issues deepen over time. Perhaps the reason that unity seems to be almost impossible at times is that we aren't focused on quite the right thing. What might it feel like were we to shift our focus away from that which divides us and onto that which unites us, the good news of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Gospels and the life of his Church? In his book The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer marks the distinction between cheap and costly grace. Cheap grace involves enjoying the grace of God without the burden of discipleship, such as in freely enjoying the benefits of forgiveness without the burden of repentance. An approach which says, God has already forgiven me, so what's the point in repenting? I may as well continue to do as I please. I wonder whether our approach to unity is sometimes a bit like that, an approach which says, if we enjoy unity with Christ, then why do we need to bother working for unity with each other? If we truly believe that we form part of the body of Christ and that our calling is to work for that unity which is both God's gift to us and his will for us, what might a deeper, more costly approach to promoting that unity within the church look like? Join me tomorrow as we reflect on costly unity. This is just one of many podcasts from St Paul's Knightsbridge, which you can find by searching on SoundCloud or Spotify.